We're uh, working through a series, Keeping Your Joy, The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. I'm, I'm, maybe no one else will be, but I'm, I'm deeply interested and challenged by the subject we're going to study today. There are going to be three points. We're going to do one this morning, just one, two next Sunday morning. So the idea here, there'll be a longer intro, some comments that I want to make for the two messages, and then we'll close with just one point at the end. But I think it's such an important topic. Here's the title. Counting everything loss for knowing Christ. So the verbs are, that here's what we do. We count everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I take that to mean unless you're prepared to count everything lost, you can't know Christ. So counting everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ, the process of finding life's deepest joy. So one would think counting everything lost would be a minus. The surprising thing is counting everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ is the root to life's deepest joy. And I think this text will make that clear. I just wanted you to know that at least I have an idea where we're going, all right? And we can follow along together. Philippians 3, we're at Philippians 3. I'm going to read 11 verses. So either open your Bible or turn it on, however you, however you do it. 3.1 Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So we are talking about joy. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then these words that just don't fit very well in our, in our ears. Look out for the dogs. Really? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's talking about circumcision. For we believers, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, blameless. Seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's where I got the title. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So that's the goal, knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. You can see that again in the title. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I like that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's the one he was so proud of a few verses earlier. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him. That's the third time he's talked about knowing him. And he's a Christian. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Help us as we look into this important text, this thought this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and make your truth living, uh, challenging, and ultimately joy-producing in all of our hearts. Oh, how we love your word. Bless our study of it together in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a striking feature in the first two verses of this text where he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. I mean, there's nothing in verses 2 through 11 that would make you think Paul's topic was in any way really related to joy. And yet he starts this whole string of thoughts, this involved text, he starts this whole string of thoughts by letting us know that it is precisely joy that he's writing about and thinking about. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. That's the first thing he says. So I take that to mean that Paul is trying to force his readers, we today as well, he's trying to force his readers to make a connection that, that might not be obvious. Connecting dots that don't seem to connect at first glance. So these verses, the ones following verse 1, they, they actually map out this route to, to inner joy. And I think that's instructive. That in itself. It tells me that Christ-centered joy, that it doesn't come from trying to think happy thoughts. It isn't some mystically induced state it also isn't a denial of circumstances. Paul talks about suffering for the sake of Christ. And yet he's writing about joy. So, so it's, it's not a denial of circumstances. It doesn't come from just living a life avoiding any cost or any trouble. I can't manufacture it. I can't manipulate my mental self into some kind of a joyful state of mind, you know, just trying to live your best life now or something like that. Joy is found in our text at the end of a path that on the surface of things looks a bit uphill, looks a bit challenging. I mean, you might not expect to find joy at the end of it. And yet Paul says, I'm writing about joy. Very first verse. And so because this path to joy doesn't look immediately promising or inviting or exciting, Paul, Paul feels this need, you'll notice it, he feels this need to remind me to stay on this path where joy will be found. I mean, because he knows my tendency to look for happiness in all the wrong places, he's going to try and keep me See that first verse? Safe. This is safe for you. He's going to try and keep my life safe. In what way? Well, safe from false pursuits. 
empty pursuits, things that look promising at the beginning, but don't go anywhere. So Paul says, I, I want to I keep you safe from those kinds of errors, those kinds of mistakes. And there's something else. This is another little nugget of wisdom that can easily be overlooked. I mean, Paul knows, Paul knows everyone wants joy, ultimately. Even people who pursue it wrongly. He knows we all want a life well lived. And I think he knows that this hunger, it's like, it's like a, a craving. We all have it. It can drive us into searches for joy that can be off target, that can be desperately blind and desperate and foolish. We can be constantly victims of that latest inner peace fulfillment huckster with some new remedy. And so Paul says, Paul says, joy will not be found in discovering something brand new we've never heard before. Joy will be found in relearning things we already know. We know that's the case because he says so in the last half of that first verse. Look at it. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Writing the same things. There's your path to safety, Paul says. Apparently he feels, I need this caution. It is easier, isn't it? It's always easier to give your attention to something brand new than something repeated. I think that's a fact. Even if you disagree with it, it's easier to give your attention to something brand new than something repeated. Paul says, I'm, I'm going to have to write the same things to you, and that's how you'll keep your life safe in your pursuit of joy. He approaches this subject knowing, well, a repeated message is sometimes the least interesting, both to deliver and to listen to. And so that's why he says he's not going to be, verse 1, I'm not going to be troubled about this. I'm not going to be put off from doing what I feel will give you the most safety and the most joy. So 3.1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. There's a lot in that first verse. Notice that little phrase. Paul is telling all of us here today, it's something. It's something. How long have I been preaching and teaching and, and you study and you learn on your own? It's humbling to come to a text like this and have someone tell us, you have not gained all the benefit from the things you've already learned yet. Right? You have not gained all the benefit from the things you've already learned, you've already heard. If you want to keep your life safe, safely anchored in, in flavorful riches of true joy, if you want to keep your life there, you, you need to take Paul's words deeply into your heart. I do too, and we need to take them into our memory. So let's make sure here in this sanctuary, online, Let's make sure we're spiritually prepared to do that as we hear Paul's words today. Note, note something else. 
I'm still just introducing all this. That this idea in that first verse especially, it's more than just a theological download. It's more than just biblical interest. Paul says my safety is at stake in this verse. Your safety is at stake. So it's not just information. And as he's led by the Holy Spirit in the selection of his words, he's careful, I think more so than usual, to, to set up his message in a way that will alert me to the fact that its importance is probably greater than I will notice at first glance. I see three insights in this text. I think they're so important that that's why Paul takes all that time to set them up the way he does. I'm reminding you of things. It's safe for you. I'm taking the trouble to do this. You need to hear this in a deeper way. There's nothing in our cultural conditioning that's going to encourage us to think the way Paul is going to tell us to think in this text. This is counter-grain stuff that he's going to be presenting. These three, I think, surprising insights, when you're thinking about a joyful knowledge of Christ, these three surprising insights, they go against man. They go against all the daily conditioning that you're going to experience outside this church this week. We're going to study one this morning. We're going to study two next Sunday morning. And now, believe it or not, point number one. But remember, this is all we're doing here. Surprising insight number one. I'm going to show it to you in this text and some others. If you want to find deepest joy in knowing Christ, you must set yourself to be against what is contrary to him. This is the shocking feature about Paul's journey into joy in Christ. To, to really know Christ, you must be prepared to set yourself to be against certain things. We don't like being against things. Our culture has names for people who are against things that they accept, and none of them are very flattering. And yet Paul seems to say you, you just can't be passionate about knowing Christ and be mild in your assessment of things that are contrary to Christ. It won't work. It won't work. You can't, you can't just concentrate on loving Christ without concentrating on being opposed to the things that Christ rejects. This we don't like doing because there's a high cultural price tag to this. Our, our culture does not mind you saying how much you love Jesus. What they hate is you being against things that Jesus is against. And so, and so what we try to do is just express our love for Jesus and leave this stuff alone. And the thing is, you, you can't know Christ that way.
in Romans chapter 12, Paul actually says the same thing, but in a stronger way. He, he says we must, we must hate what is evil if we're to have any hope at all of clinging to what is good and growing in Christian love. That, by the way, is in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Look it up with me just for a minute. Romans 12, 9. There's this verb, abhor. But it comes second. This is actually a text, surprisingly, this is a text about love, though not the way we typically define it. There's, there's saying love. There's telling Jesus you love him. How, much, how often do we do that in church? We'll have a worship time, a good worship time. We'll close our eyes. We'll raise our hands. Most of the songs will have some way of expressing, I, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. How many times will we, in one way or another, tell Jesus how much we love him in church today? Now, here's the Is that love going to be this? Is, is it going to be sentimental or is it going to be genuine? How will we know? Paul has a clue. If love is going to be that, genuine, then this other verb, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And of those two things, notice which comes first and which comes second. It's quite a verse, isn't it? It's quite a verse. The Spirit, here's why, I'm, here's why I'm highlighting this, here's why Paul talks about it. The Spirit of this age is far too intelligent to attack Christian commitment by just enticing you and me to deny Christ. Satan doesn't bother with that. He's too smart, and he knows he doesn't have to do that. He knows there's a much more effective way to win the battle for your heart, mind, and faith and draw you away from devotion to Christ. He doesn't have to make you deny Christ. His attack has much greater success than enticing me to deny Christ. It's to press me by, by sheer peer cultural pressure to accept everything else along with my commitment to Christ. To not be opposed to the things that Christ is against. And here, here Satan shows his true genius. This is, this is denying Christ by gradual, casual default rather than an explicit statement of denial. To, to help us see this, now you come to these really hard words in this text. Our Philippians text. To help us see this, Paul launches his words with a, a deliberate shock to our sensitivities. It's in that second verse where he says, look out for the dogs. Seriously, Paul? Like, is, this, is this what you're sinking to? This kind of name calling? Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Talking about 
the old covenant, Jewish circumcision. And at first we're, we're a little bit taken back, a little bit taken back, seems a little harsh. And then, of course, we remember this was a somewhat common expression to show the ceremonial uncleanness, not personal inferiority. That's not what he's doing. The ceremonial uncleanness of Gentiles as opposed to the ceremonial purity of Jews under the Old Covenant. I've seen the situation. Some of you have been in some countries in Africa, even some areas of Spain and in, in uh, grubby areas of Madrid where we were, and I've seen those kind of dogs. They're hard to relate. I have, uh, I have a daughter and son-in-law, and, and they have a dog. And Chewy is just... Dogs today are just like a part of the family. And it's hard for us to get the picture of what dogs were then. But you go to some places in Africa, and you just see these mangy-looking critters, and nobody owns them. They're just there all over the alleys and the streets. That's where they sleep at night. They dig through the garbage cans. They're just, they're just a picture of, they're a picture of something unkept outside, not included in the social circle. And so you get that kind of a picture in your, in your mind. And this phrase actually even found on the lips of Jesus, Matthew 7, 6 and 15, 26. And it just helps us to understand that Paul doesn't mean they're inferior. What he means is they're ceremonially unclean. They're outside of the Jewish covenant and the law that God had given to the people of Israel and all the washings and all the diets. They were outside, the unclean. And that would help explain it, except Paul isn't using the term, look at the text, he's not using the term to describe Gentiles. The best evidence is, when he talks about circumcision and the flesh, the best evidence is he's using that term dogs, but he's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Jews. This is what would have been so shocking to Paul's readers. Why would he do that? Because, because here's, here's, here's how Paul thinks of anybody. Gentile or Jew, and he talks about his own Jewish pedigree, plenty in that text. I took the time to read the whole thing. This is how Paul thinks of anyone who opposes Christ for any reason. You, you, can't, be, you can't be committed to Christ without being opposed to what denigrates and downplays and rejects the message, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. So in other words, what I'm saying is there, there was nothing, even in Paul's day, that was culturally acceptable in his use of the term in this Jewish context. It was just plain, outright shocking. It's not the only time Paul did it. You'll find it five times, just in the letters we have recorded in the New Testament, where Paul uses equally descriptive terms to address those who Turn themselves against Jesus Christ. Paul will have none of it. He'll have none of it. It wasn't some uncontrollable burst of narrow-minded temper. And it wasn't just name-calling. It seems just to be his standard, studied, repeated response to those who would set themselves in opposition to God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. 
I don't have time to unfold all that the way I'd like, but just, just pause here. Here's a question. Answer it here, answer it as you're watching online. How prepared are you to stand for Christ when it means not just liking him, saying you believe in him, or singing love songs to him, but when it means standing against something else at a very high cultural cost. Are you teaching your family that the only sin they need to fear is intolerance? Is that the impression they're getting? This is not a plea for arrogance or lovelessness. There's plenty of that to go around. Christians must always respond with grace, even when they're wronged or when they're persecuted. Mark that sentence. We must always respond with grace when we're wronged personally. But while I have breath, I will never respond with acquiescence when Christ is maligned, when the gospel is rejected. I am passionately against any belief system that marginalizes the glory of the incarnation, the sinless life of Christ, his redeeming death, his resurrection. And let me say one more thing. I think we need to highlight the difference. Increasingly in the church, we need to highlight the difference between what is becoming an increasingly light phrase, believing in Jesus, and start talking more about believing everything Jesus said. What Jesus said about salvation coming through him alone. What Jesus said about judgment. What Jesus said about sin. What Jesus said about marriage. What Jesus said about human sexuality. What Jesus said about all sorts of things. There's all sorts of Christians, I see it more and more, who tell me they believe in Jesus, but clearly don't believe what he said. So I'll have that conversation. I have it in the office. People will say, oh, I believe in Jesus. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? Do you believe everything Jesus said? I'm not sure. Well, let's go through some of the things. And what you find out is they're trying to, they're trying to sustain some kind of belief in Jesus that has no moral authority in it. And here, this isn't in the notes, by the way, if you're sorry, if you're trying to follow along up there. Here's the problem. One day, when your little ones, they're going to get older and older, and they're going to leave home, and they're going to go to university. And if all they had was, was some kind of belief in Jesus without the moral authority of Jesus on issues with a cultural cost to them, here's what's going to happen. They're going to go to college, to university, and their belief in Jesus is going to start to feel like belief in the tooth fairy because it never did come to the place where they settled in their heart. Here's the implications of this. So what I'm saying is, before they leave home, somewhere take the training wheels off that bike. Tell them the things that are going to cost if they're going to follow Jesus. It's the same in the church, same in all of our lives. I went too long on that. My own opinion... My own opinion, I can't show you chapter and verse. 
my opinion is God has allowed the uprise of strong anti-Christian voices, even in our own land, to help expose the church's deeply entrenched relativism. Eventually, in his wise grace, God will force us out of our comfortable tolerance by increasing pressure brought against his name. And we're going to have to fly the flag somewhere. Let me say it again. Paul is describing, if that sounds harsh to you, don't forget that first verse. Paul is, Paul is describing the surprising pathway to joy. To a faith that you know, that you know, that you know is real because you paid for it yourself. I don't mean by works. I mean by the kind of commitment you've made to it. You've bought in. With all the life God grants me on this earth before I die, one of the key ways I manifest my devotion to Christ Jesus is to reject what displeases him. Any other commitment to Jesus is empty talk. It's flat tire discipleship. And the thing is, there will be no ultimate joy in that kind of walk with Jesus. You, I will never find joy in Jesus until I press myself to choose devotion to him over cultural acceptance. You, you pay the price for that kind of joy. It's become increasingly hard for us, and I'm almost done. It's, it's become increasingly hard for us because we are constantly being trained to believe it's only narrow-minded, fundamentalist bigots who are against anything. Tolerant people are for things. We don't like to be against things. And more than that, there's, there's a high cultural cost to standing against things that culture celebrates. And that has greatly flattened out what discipleship is all about. Here's the heartening close. Following Jesus today is probably the most similar that it's ever been to following Jesus in the New Testament times. Like this is the exact environment where Christianity was birthed. This is the exact environment where it turned the world upside down, to use the words of Acts. You're in very good company, very good company. Always remember it is never loveless to be against what grieves the heart of Jesus Christ. Everyone said, it was a little mumbly. Try it with your mask on. Everyone said, yeah, yeah. More on this, uh, more on this next Sunday, let's pray. Oh, your word is always good. It is always true. Thank you for the way, thank you for the way, inspired by the Spirit, the Apostle Paul speaks your word to this church. There's safety here in remembering some of these things, being reminded of them. And there's joy. So keep this word alive in our hearts, both here and online. Help us not to hear it lightly. Let it land with 
do joyful wait on all of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.